our text is in Galatians. I'll actually preach from Galatians 1, 11 to 24, but right now I'll read verses 10 to 12. Let's give ear to God's word. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you to open our ears to the truth of your word. We give you the glory, Father, for all that you have done, and we ask you to come now, have your Holy Spirit to fill us with a desire to please you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The message is, the gospel is of God. And what I just read to you in verses 11 and 12 is really the premise behind that statement. The gospel is of God. So Paul in this text presents this premise and then he gives lots of evidence in support of that premise. And so that's pretty much how I'll structure the message. Uh, I do want to begin though with three points uh, before I get into that text. Uh, two points are fairly simple, and then the third one is a little bit more involved. But uh, first, in verse 11, uh, Paul does refer to them as brethren. He said, but I make known to you, brethren. And uh, in the past two messages, I've talked about how Paul was really coming down pretty hard on the Galatians in this letter. This is the first time he really refers to them in this familial sense, calling them brethren. And he's doing it to soften, in a sense, the fact that, yes, he's been pretty harsh thus far, and yet he wants them to understand that he does regard them as believers. He is wanting to reach them and comfort them, and yet his initial coolness was a rebuke. It was meant to be a rebuke. But yet here he is now softening his tone and treating them in family terms. The second point, and it's the reason that I included verse 10, is that... Uh, Paul stated that he is not a man-pleaser, and so I wanted to address that just briefly. Uh, the Judaizers had accused him of this, and we live in a time, and frankly, I think we're probably always living in a time where people want to just hear good stuff. They want to hear the positives. That's referred to as man-pleasing. Uh, the Bible's filled with references to the fact that people had itchy ears, and they didn't want to hear what the prophets had to say. They wanted to hear people complimenting them, telling them what a good job they're doing. And yet that isn't often what the Bible is ready and willing to tell us. And the prophets, prophets also had uh, that same different message from God. We now have it codified. And so we have a lot of negatives in the Bible. And those people that refuse to speak to our culture about those negatives are preaching only half the gospel and therefore they're not preaching the gospel. So we need to preach the gospel. It includes both positives and negatives. So he is rejecting a negative in this verse. I do not now persuade men. And I'll get a little bit more into this, but uh, I wanted to speak first about what Jesus said. Remember what he said about wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. That's because 
the path uh, that is broad, that leads to destruction, incorporates both legalism and licentiousness. So those people are marching towards hell, and they have many, many churches that they can attend that will not rebuke them for this. That's why Jesus said, narrow is the gate and difficult is the path that leads to life because you've got to stay out of the ditches. On that road, the ditches are legalism and licentiousness. Paul himself had been a legalist. And we'll get into a lot of details about that as we uh, proceed through chapter one here. But yet he admits this, he knows this, and yet he's being accused now by the Judaizers of getting into the other ditch. He's jumped from legalism into licentiousness, and he's rejecting that because he said, if I were to do that, what I'd really be then is a man pleaser, and I'm certainly no man pleaser. He wouldn't have gotten beaten nearly as much <laughs> if he were a man pleaser. So now I want to address one more question, and that's the third point, and it'll take a few minutes. But that question is this. Uh, why were the Galatians so easily led astray? They had been converted soundly recently, and yet here they are being led astray so soon after this conversion. And so I believe the answer is this, that what the Judaizers were saying to the Galatians appealed to them. It appealed to them in an emotional sense. We were told earlier that we must not follow our emotions. We must follow the word of God. And that's exactly what I want to say here. These Galatians were being told that they really have a part in their salvation. It can't be as simple as Paul is saying. That appealed to them at this visceral human failure sense because they experience all of this sin and shame and they want to get rid of it. And they don't really see the means of getting rid of it through the gospel. They don't understand that. They still think that they have to earn it. They have to work. Uh, in economics and free market economics, there's the concept of there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. I love that concept in free market economics. But in God's kingdom, there is not only a free lunch, but it's a free meal ticket for the rest of our existence, which is going to be forever. And that goes against the nature of our world. It goes against the nature of people that feel that they always and have to must earn everything that they ever use or ever gain. And that's just not true. But they have a lot of biblical support for that. The book of Proverbs is all about industry, is all about hard work and ethic. And so they have a lot to argue their case with Paul over. But yet Paul said, if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. They have Paul's own words working for them. It's Paul's own attitude about the fact that people should be working. Uh, years ago, uh, well, you know, maybe five, I don't know. But uh, anyway, I watched this video and it was about the, the, uh, the tigers, the tiger nations that had experienced this economic uh, calamity back in 97 when all the hot money that rolls around the world was suddenly just pulled from Asia. It's just everybody was fearful that those economies and, and their, uh, their uh, currencies were failing. There was a Malaysian uh, real estate developer, very wealthy man, and he was in the midst of 
one of his many leveraged deals, and he had this huge, beautiful, multi-square-mile property. I mean, he had all kinds of high-rises, and uh, they were built on many golf courses, but he lost it all. He lost everything. I mean, he was broke. And yet, in this uh, study, he's a sandwich vendor. He's a man who has one little cart, and he wheels it around in the downtown city streets, and he's selling sandwiches. And what is just remarkable about this is that he did not waste any time talking about the past and, oh, it was, I had this and I had that. He's like, I'm going to be the best sandwich vendor the city's ever seen. You know, I, In 10 years, I'm going to have 100 carts out here. I'm going to have all these people hired. And it's just beautiful to see that. And that's what we want to see, right? We want to see that type of industry in our world, in our economy, in our social structure. It has nothing to do with your salvation, with your standing before God. And so that's where it falls apart. People take that type of attitude, that type of desire, and they apply it to earning favor with God, earning points. Uh, I was asking my wife, and I, I've probably already forgotten, I think it was Tai Shan, when she was in China with a, a fellow traveler back in the early 80s, they went to the city of Shando, and they climbed the mountain called Tai Shan, and it consists of thousands and thousands of steps. And so they got there, and they had their luggage with them. But they're told it only takes two hours. So they climbed this, and it took them all day. And they're constantly being passed by all these old Chinese people. Just, whoop, you know. Even, even Chinese people, workers that have these bamboo sticks with, with buckets full of materials, building materials, they're running up the walk. And, you know, my wife wasn't in bad shape. But apparently, all these people, you know, just climb this mountain every day, apparently. Maybe there's something wonderful at the top, but my wife didn't find it to be but kind of bleak and dreary up there at 11 p.m. when she got up there. But uh, that's the way people view salvation. Think of this. To her, those steps seemed infinite. There were 6,000 and some steps. But imagine a mountain that has a million steps. You can't climb that in a day. And yet, you can make progress from wherever you start that day. And that's how people view getting to God. All they have to do is show some progress, and then God will let them in. And pretty much the cutoff line is behind me for those that aren't going to get in. However much industry I've thrown into it, God is going to reward me for it. I, I'm in. We're the, we're the standard. We're the dividing line. That's what the Tower of Babel was all about. Us building a tower that can reach into heaven to prevent us from being distributed over the, all the earth and lost. Have our glory be lost in the mass of humanity that's spreading out across the globe. Remember last week, if you were here, I shared with you this Mormon woman's perspective on the good news. Remember what she said is this. Evangelical Christians are not mainstream Christians. They do not believe that you are saved through your works while on earth, but simply by asking Jesus to be your personal Savior. That's how this Mormon woman viewed the good news of the gospel. It was foolishness. It was wrong. It was something that evangelicals are in error about. And that's because the good news of the gospel emphasizes man's impotence, man's inability. It humbles man. And people don't like this humbling. They want to hold on to the theory that their effort is earning them points with God. 
and they really are upset with people that try to upset that worldview, that try to open their eyes to the truth. They want to lower the bar of righteousness low enough that their shame does not prevent them from getting in. So as your shame climbs, that bar goes lower and lower. You just want in. And I want to share with you, uh, I could have picked any cult, frankly, because nearly every cult is a works righteousness cult, but instead I chose Roman Catholicism. Now, I honestly don't have an axe to grind against Roman Catholics. I don't hate them. But I do dislike their theology. I don't believe it's biblical. And so to the degree that it is unbiblical, I want us to be aware of it and alert to it. Protestants and Catholics have a fundamentally different view on grace. Catholics will refer to grace as sanctifying grace, but really what they mean is saving grace. Whereas Protestants will differentiate between saving grace and sanctifying grace. They're two fundamentally different concepts. They are, they are given in entirely different ways for entirely different things, and we'll get into that to some degree. First, the Roman Catholics have seven sacraments, Protestants have two, and I'll go through their seven sacraments and kind of the, the importance of them. First, baptism. Baptism in the Roman Catholic religion removes all original sin and all personal sin at that moment of baptism. That is a pure and perfect individual. If they were to die at that instant, they would immediately go to heaven. They would not have to go to purgatory. They would go immediately to heaven to be with God because they're entirely free from sin. Now, long ago, because of this, people didn't want to get baptized because that's a powerful tool. I don't want to baptize my child. My child might grow up to be a wicked sinner. I want to save that baptism. That baptism is special, and so I'll save it. And so people would wait until the end of their lives to be baptized because that was like superpower, you know? I want to save that. I don't want to expend that now. So what did the church do? They said, well, if you're not baptized, you can't be saved. Yeah, I mean, there is no purgatory for you even. You just go straight to hell. Ooh, now you're having to balance the preservation of this super power that you want to control and use later with the risk of never having the opportunity to use it. Because if you die or your infant dies, they could go straight to hell. Then you have confirmation. Confirmation perfects baptism. It binds one to the church in a more fundamental way, in a more sanctified way. And so that's why you want your children to be confirmed. But long ago, you need a bishop to confirm you. And yet long ago, many people lived in the country. The cities weren't filled. But where were the bishops? They were in the cities. They didn't want to live in the country. They wanted to be somebody in the Roman Catholic Church. So once they got their bishopric, they would move to the biggest city that they could get to. And they wouldn't go out into the countryside to confirm these people. If you wanted to be confirmed, you had to go to the city, and then you had to go on their timetable. And so this was something that was kind of uh, not possible for everybody to enjoy this confirmation. But then you had other means of grace, and so this is good. You had communion, which or mass, and this is eating and, blink, eating and drinking the blood and body of Christ. And so even here, though, you have to do this at least once a year, but even here, the commoners weren't allowed to drink the blood. They weren't trusted to hold that chalice of the blood of Christ. It was bad enough that they had to be trusted with the bread, and that's why the priest would put it right on their, right on their mouth. But uh, Matt Bennett was sharing, and he's probably shared with some of you, how when he was young, 
he happened to get one of those wafers and it didn't fall on his tongue. It fell on the ground and his dad was looking daggers at him. Not only did it fall on the ground, it fell on the ground and it rolled away. <laughs> this is a piece of the body of Christ. Get it, boy. And so he had to go find that piece of the body of Christ and eat it. He wasn't going to allow that to, to go wasted. And so he had to go find that piece. I mean, his dad was very upset with him. He obviously had done it. The priest hadn't made a mistake. His boy did, and he was rebuking him for it. Confession. Now, there are three aspects of confession. There is your state, and that is contrition. You must be contrite before going to confession. Then you have the act of confession, and then you have the punishment that is meted out to you in order to remedy what it is that you've confessed. You've got penance. Only after those three things, your heart had to be right, you had to go to confession, and you had to then enact a penance, then those sins were forgiven, and only then. And now this was necessary. Confession was absolutely necessary because any mortal sin that you, uh, you had in your life since the time of last, last confession had entirely emptied you of grace, entirely emptied you of grace. It's like those buckets that fill up and then tip over and dump the water out. You did it. You screwed something up. It's all gone now. So you better go and get right with God because only after confession, essentially, is there a stopper put back in that bucket or it's turned back upside right to where all your works can now begin to, again, accumulate sanctifying grace. Because until you go to confession after committing that mortal sin, there's nothing accumulating for you. There's a, there's a hole in the dam for you, and you've got to fix that. Marriage, and this is obviously uh, as opposed to ordination, because in the Roman Catholic Church, to be ordained, you're celibate. And so you have these kind of uh, parallel means of attaining grace. We who are married know that we need grace to remain married. We know this, and so we're thankful for this one. We don't view it as a sacrament, but we do view it as a blessing of God, that he gives us grace such that we don't kill our spouses or have our spouse kill us on the way here. I told my wife, I said, you know, I have my glasses and I have my sermon, I'm ready. She says, well, you know, either one of those can disappear at any time. <laughs> See, I give you insight into my wife. <laughs> you know why I have to behave. But so you have marriage and ordination. That's for the kind of these twin paths of getting additional grace. And now you have the last one, which used to be called last rites, used to be called extreme unction. Now it's called anointing the sick. They've changed it. I ask you, why did they change it? Roman Catholicism is very, very pragmatic. There are two reasons they cha changed extreme unction or last rites. Think of it. Think of you as being at the, at the deathbed of a loved one, and you've got this opportunity to get that priest there to absolve your loved one of all sin, to bypass purgatory, go straight to heaven. And what happens if you call that priest too late? or if your priest isn't as good as other priests, and he gets there late, and they're dead now. That last rites could not be performed upon them. Whatever sin they died with, and if they'd committed a mortal sin since their previous confession, there's no sanctifying grace for them. Their bucket is empty. Oh, now it's up to everybody else, right? It's everybody else who has excess grace over in this other big communal bucket to save your loved one, or up to you to pray them out of purgatory. So suddenly you have this tremendous burden on you to save them when if only you'd been able to call that priest a few minutes earlier or only he wouldn't have been so lazy in getting there late. 
So see, the Roman Catholics were taking a lot of flack for allowing this to be the case. And then two, what if the other thing happens? What if you call the priest in? Last rites, one time, just like baptism. So see, now it's last rites. You call him out there and he doesn't die. He survives. It's just as bad. Because now he might again, and now you've shot it again. You've lost that opportunity. So you see how pragmatic they are. Now they call it anointing of the sick. And it does bring grace into your life. And you can do it as often as you want. So they solved a problem there. And really, the, 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 the nuclear weapon in Roman Catholic grace is baptism. And, and that's why they had to close that loophole. They had to just close that long ago and say, no, if, if you aren't baptized, you're not saved. And that's why even now it's associated with salvation. It's because they closed that loophole long ago. And that's why now it's even associated with salvation. Because if you don't get baptized, you don't get in. Because people were abusing the privilege that it gave of totally washing away all of your sin. Now, why do I bring this up? Roman Catholicism works, right? It's very popular. Uh, Cults work. They're very popular. From an earthly perspective, these religions work for people. They do what they want. But do they do what you need? I don't think so. In order for them to do what you need, it must be biblical, not unbiblical. And so that's why we want to talk about this. Now, Paul's main point, as I mentioned to you, was this premise that the gospel is God's idea. Man couldn't invent the gospel, frankly. Man is not that creative. Sure, we're made in God's image. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we're depraved. We can't think like God in this matter. We can't think that the humiliating death of Christ, coupled with our humiliation and admitting our weakness, can get us saved. It's just totally upside down. And yet that is the way God designed it. Only God could design that because only he, frankly, has the character that is so pure that can enact this. I want to read again verses 11 and 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is introducing himself as being the means by which God brought this supernatural act into their lives. Because he was the evangelist that went to Galatia. He was the evangelist that preached to them. And, uh, and through which they were saved. And he's reminding them of this. He says, it wasn't me. It was this supernatural act, and yet I was there. And yet I was not personally taught. God gave me this as revelation. He's again supporting the fact that he's a big A apostle, as I talked about a couple months ago. He is not inferior to the other apostles. Paul presents five proofs of his apostleship. And again, like I said, he's defending not himself. He's defending the gospel. That's the only reason he's defending himself is because the gospel is the message that he brings. And if they can discredit him, they're discrediting the, mes- discrediting the message. That's why they want to discredit him. Now, there are five proofs that he brings up in this ensuing text. And let me read this uh, to you. I'll start at verse 13. 
and read to the end of the chapter. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. I want to go into each of these five proofs in a little bit of detail. And I hope it doesn't get too tedious, but I think it's important to walk through this argument with Paul. First, he said that he persecuted the church beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And let's recap what he did. He was the holder of the clothing when they stoned Stephen to death with that that beautiful uh, sermon of Stephen's there in Acts 7. He then was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. That's in Acts 9. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to pursue them, essentially into their homes. He persecuted this way to the death. He shut up saints in prison and voted for their deaths. He punished them and compelled them to blaspheme. We still have this occurring in the world today, and that is what occurred at the founding of Christianity, and it still occurs today. I doubt it has ever stopped occurring today because in every culture that the gospel penetrates, it's supernatural. It goes against everything any culture ever stood for, and people don't like it. People hate it, and those in power hate it the most because it undermines their authority from their perspective, and so they want to destroy it. He said, I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it, and yet his famous teacher the one that he was tutored by was Gamaliel. And listen to what Gamaliel said in Acts 5.34. He said, let the Christians alone, that this may die out of its own accord. So Saul went against Gamaliel's advice. Saul was still a young man. He was probably no more than 30. But yet he was so zealous that he was willing to oppose even the man who had trained him up in Judaism. He was on fire for Judaism. When I was a new believer back in the early 80s, I read a book uh, entitled The Persecutor. Have I mentioned that here? Anybody remember that? Uh, There's a man by the name of Sergei Kortikov. He was an orphan. He grew up an orphan in Russia. And he went into the Naval Academy, became a, a, a stellar officer, and yet he also joined the KGB. And they assigned him to be the leader of a task force that would go out and raid religious meetings that were secretly being uh, conducted. So he did that very successfully for a few years in the late 60s until one day he went and there was this beautiful young woman who was leading the study and he was just really struck, not so much by her beauty, but by her poise. 
he was like, what is this young woman doing mixed up with this religious stuff? He could see the old women doing it. That made perfect sense. But why is this young woman caught up in this? She's risking everything. And so he didn't have the heart to beat her. He just told her to get out. But she preached to him. She preached the gospel to him. And yet he didn't have a tolerance for it. He still let her go, but he told her to get out. And yet the very next meeting he went to, like within two weeks, she was again there. He was so enraged that he wanted to just crush this movement now because he had given her a chance and she had rebuffed this chance. And the first woman that he saw was an old woman over here who was praying for him. Didn't stop praying for him. And he took his baton and he wanted to crush her skull. He swung it with all of his force and it stopped in midair. He said it was like this invisible wall just went up and he could not get it past that wall. He tried again and the same thing happened. He was, he was scared. I mean, he had never had anything like this occur to him. He was scared to death. He fled the room. His team you know, kind of collected outside. He went back, but he started calling in sick. He did not want to participate in this again. It totally turned his world upside down. And he became a Christian because this thing had miraculously occurred to him. So he then went on to uh, oppose what they were doing. He escaped the country and then he was killed a few years later in L.A. And he had always told people, he said, if I die mysteriously, he said, you know that the Russians got to me. He said, because they don't tolerate people like me leaving their flock. And so he, he did die within a few years. He was killed in, in L.A. But uh, this goes to show you how miraculous the gospel is. This stuff occurs. It occurred with Paul. It occurred with this man just over here in Russia in the 60s. It occurs with us on the front lines of Christianity. But we're not necessarily on the front lines of Christianity, are we? We're somewhere way back in the back. And I'm not... I'm not uh, saying we should all be on the front lines. But I'm just saying that let's not disparage people who are experiencing this. This is a wonderful thing, God at work in our world. And let's uh, acknowledge this. Now, the second proof that Paul had was this. And it's that he had abandoned a promising future as a Pharisee. I've already talked about that. But I want to say some people would have maybe said, Paul's too young. He's being influenced by these people, they've persuaded him somehow. And we have a typical image nowadays in our culture of this. We have all these young Islamic men who even in the United States are abandoning the promise of their future to go overseas and become suicide bombers, even to become suicide bombers here. When I preached this sermon initially last summer down in Lincoln, just a few weeks earlier, uh, there had been, there was a, uh, a young man from Minnesota who had gone back to the Middle East and blew himself up. His parents had, had moved here when he was very young. He was probably not more than six or seven years old, but yet he grew up to become a terrorist. And so he was led astray by militant Islamic extremists up in the Minneapolis area. He did not go alone. There were 20 young Somali men from Minneapolis that went overseas. Three of them by that time were already dead. They had been killed in various things. And then just last week, if you remember, in Portland, there was a young man arrested. He, he was actually 
approached by the FBI with a sting operation. And he was given all kinds of opportunities to show his uh, bona fides for the Islamic faith through various things, teaching, blah, blah. He went right to the violent one. He wanted to go out as a suicide bomber and kill a bunch of people in the process. And so now, of course, the defense is arguing that he was trapped and entrapment. And, and, but yet still, it shows what's in these young men's hearts, this, this desire for something bigger than themselves. And so that's what Paul could be accused of. But yet, he already had that zeal. He had it for Judaism. He was already on fire. He was opposing Christ. So what he gave up was something that was already these men are thriving to, flocking to. And so that is not a valid criticism of Paul and what he's done. It's not that he had become a zealot. He was a zealot. To switch sides, to become a zealot of what you're opposing, that's unheard of. That, that's remarkable. And yet that's what happened to Paul. He describes himself in, Israel, uh, in Judaism as this, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That word, I advanced in Judaism, brings to mind aggressiveness, ambition, unbridled ambition. Uh, and last summer, just as I preached this a few weeks before, or maybe even a weekend before, um, we'd gone to a melodrama down at Mahoney, and there was a woman who was ambitious in the melodrama, and her name was Miss Stab and Grab. And my daughter Hannah pointed that out to me. And uh, I was like, yeah, that's, that's unbridled ambition. And that's what he says he experienced. He was well ahead of all of his contemporaries because he was the one that was willing to do this, get bloody. He was willing to go get bloody, drag people out of their homes. You know, young mothers with children who would be clinging after them, beat them back, drag the moms away. He, he had no mercy on these people. They were wicked and needed to be exterminated. The third proof that he himself is an apostle is that he was without ordination by the other apostles. And he brings that up in 16 and 17. He said, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And it's this, uh, where he went to Arabia, that everyone says this is where he was taught by the revelation of Jesus Christ for three years. He was tutored in Christianity just as the other apostles had been by Christ, personally, in Arabia. And the authority that the apostles had was over all the earth, all the church. They had the responsibility of taking the gospel to all the earth. Now, Paul did not write an autobiography, nor is Acts a biography of his life. We only see bits and pieces that God wanted to share of this man's life. When he chronicles all of the abuse that he'd gone through, you see next to none of that abuse in the book of Acts. And so he really doesn't get into a lot of the detail about what went wrong for him in various cities that he was preaching in. He's only sharing you what God wanted him to share. The fourth proof, Peter finally did meet uh, Peter and James, or Paul finally did meet Peter and James, but only after three years, it says in verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In other words, if they had authorized him to be an apostle, and which means that he is in some way inferior to them, why would he not even have gone to see them? It's just not possible. 
the, uh, the fifth proof and the last proof is that he was accepted by the Judean churches. And uh, let me read starting at verse uh, 22. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. I was unknown by face to those people in Judea. He'd never even been through these churches and yet they knew of him because they knew that the one that formerly persecuted them now preached the gospel. And if he had been made an apostle, uh, uh, through derivation we can see another proof here, if he had been made an apostle by the other apostles, then the Judean churches would know him. He would have been with them. The Judean churches are in Judea, where all the apostles are. Because when the, when the uh, persecution came, all the believers spread, but the apostles remained. You know, the Bible is very clear. The apostles remained as a unit in the city of Jerusalem. Now, why did Paul give these proofs? Again, I already told you, he was demonstrating the fact that he was an apostle and he was not a man pleaser. That is not what he wanted to do. He reminded the Galatians who he was and how he came to be who he was. Why it was that he was on fire for God. His service to Jesus, when you understand his personal experience, his service is rational, even undergoing all of that persecution, all of those many beatings. But you can't convince an unbeliever that any of that is rational. It just isn't rational to endure that type of pain, that type of suffering. And yet being Christians, only Christians can understand that, can empathize with Paul, can see that the, the gain is worth the, the price. Now, we also are called to share the gospel. We are not absolved from what Paul did. We are encouraged to share the gospel. Do you share the gospel? Do you have a testimony? Is your faith in Christ, is your faith in the future of your life here on earth and in heaven above, is it predicated entirely upon the gospel, upon Christ's work, or is it in any way on your work? Because Paul didn't brag about what he had done, even though he had done so much. In the end, he still called himself a servant and not a very good servant at that. So the question is, how do we go about learning from Paul's life, Paul, learning from Paul's experience here? Why is he enduring this abuse from these Galatians? Why is he persisting in love of these people when all they want to do is criticize him and attack him? And it's because he's totally sold out to the gospel. Are you totally sold out to the gospel? Not only have you been saved, but do you love people? Do you love the church? Do you love those that are outside the church? Paul did, and he commands us to do the same. That's our job as Christians. That's your responsibility. We are told in Scripture to pray without ceasing, to stand fast in the Lord, to be anxious for nothing. We're told to put to death the members which are on the earth. But yet, does that mean that if you accomplish those things that you've somehow earned God's favor? No. It has nothing to do with earning God's favor. You have God's favor through Christ. And so there is a huge gulf that exists between saving grace that we get through Christ 
and sanctifying grace, which we get through sometimes the school of hard knocks. Now, it's true, it's the Holy Spirit that's taken us through that and sanctifying us. And yet, we do participate in that. We are active in that. And so when he commands us to pray without ceasing, to stand fast in the Lord, to be anxious for nothing, to the degree that we obey, to the degree that we engage ourselves in living like Christians, is a degree to which we will receive sanctifying grace. We will be sanctified. Tomorrow, if you do all the things that make you grow in Christ today well, tomorrow will be perhaps a 0.1% easier to do the same. That's what life on earth is all about. That's what the process of sanctification is all about. You're developing good habits, and you're persisting in those good habits, and you are then making it that much easier for you to do the right thing tomorrow, to do God's will as opposed to your own will. Now, I want to get back to this testimony, though, because if you've read Acts, and you know we had Pastor Kaiser lead us through Acts a few years ago, And when you see where Jesus, for instance, spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus, you see it not only in Acts 9, but you see it repeatedly. It comes up later in Acts 22 or 26. And so you see that Paul is again giving his testimony. He's giving his salvation story, this miraculous salvation story. And frankly, even if you grew up in the church all your life, you have a miraculous salvation story. It's not like Paul's, thank God. But it is still the salvation story. You can speak about parents who were faithful in the faith, having attended at church services that were faithful in preaching the gospel. This is a story that you are called to share with those that don't have that story, with those that don't have any love or respect for the church. You can give them that. You can educate them on this. I want to share with you this story, and I think actually... uh, Uh, Pastor Kaiser shared this a while ago, but I'll share it again because it's just beautiful. Um, About over 100 years ago in London, there was a street preacher by the name of Hughes, H.P. Hughes, and he was the head of a rescue mission in London. And he was famous for his street preaching. He was a great preacher. And yet there was also a rather renowned atheist. At that time, he would have been referred to as an infidel. And there was this famous infidel by the name of Charles Bradlaugh. And at an open-air meeting where Hughes, the evangelist, is preaching, Bradlaw challenges him. And he says, I challenge you to a debate about the merits of faith versus no faith. And uh, Hughes accepted on one condition. He said, to this debate, I invite you to bring a hundred people who have been made better by embracing your message. He says, because I'll do the same. I'll bring you a hundred people that were formerly prostitutes and drunkards whose lives have been transformed by the grace of God. And I invite you to do the same. Bring me a hundred people whose lives are infinitely better because of their lack of faith. And so Bradlaw refused on those grounds. He didn't have a hundred people to bring. If he brought a hundred people, their lives are probably worse off for having embraced their atheism. I want to close by reading John uh, chapter 1, not all of it, but just some verses from it. I'm going to read from John 1, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 11 to 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the saved are born of God. If you are not born of God, you are not of God. If you are not born of God, please talk to one of the elders. Because a hunger for being born of God can be appeased. You just have to follow what God commands us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the supernatural gift of the gospel, the supernatural gift that uh, Paul so evidenced in his life. Uh, he can point to when he was an unbeliever, a legalist in Judaism, and when he became a believer and he embraced the gospel. We ask you, Father, to make that distinction in our lives so clear that we would have no doubts that we are yours. We ask you to be with us now, to glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.